congregation, boys and girls, I'm sure that all of you at some point have experienced a power outage. All of a sudden, the lights go out. All of a sudden, nothing works anymore. None of your equipment works. Because without power, they cannot function. And darkness literally comes upon the land. Congregation, we can say that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there was an instant power outage. Darkness descended upon the earth. Suddenly, a man and a woman who had been created in God's image, suddenly, everything about them became dysfunctional. Suddenly, they no longer functioned as God had designed them to function because the Spirit no longer dwelt in them. Not only had God created Adam and Eve in His image, in the image of His only begotten Son, but He also created them to be the temples of His Holy Spirit. As a result of the fall, human beings have become the synagogues of Satan. But thanks be to God, we know that in natural life, Sometimes the power outages don't last very long, and what a joy it is when suddenly the lights come on, when suddenly everything works again. Sometimes those power outages are of long duration. And then when the power comes back, there is even greater joy. And yet that does not compare to the fact that God from the dawn of history has seen to it that human beings who by nature dwell in darkness, the darkness of sin, who by nature live lives that are divorced from God, void of His Spirit, that those human beings, fallen human beings, are renewed again and again become the temples of the Holy Ghost. That's why, congregation, the work of Christ, the redeeming work of Christ, was not complete until the Spirit was poured out. And how anxious Christ was for that to be accomplished, how He longed to go back to His Father, how He told His disciples that it was essential for Him that He would go away so that He could shed forth that Spirit as the crowning work of His redeeming ministry. And so with God's help, we will focus today on that remarkable event in redemption history when the Spirit of God was poured out upon all flesh. And so let's read again the opening verses of Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. And there we read God's Word in our text, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house 
where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we have four simple points, boys and girls, four simple points based on this text. So first of all, the Holy Spirit was poured out when? It says when the day was fully come, or we could say in the fullness of time. Secondly, he came in the manner of a mighty rushing wind. We know that the Holy Spirit is invisible. Why, boys and girls? Because he is a spirit. And yet, there were obvious evidences of his being poured out. There's the, 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 the rushing, the, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Thirdly, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit was symbolized by the tongues of fire that sat upon each of the disciples for sure and possibly on the 120 who were gathered in the upper room. And finally, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was manifested in the apostles. Because what happened in verse 4, as they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, they began to speak with other tongues, with other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, in the fullness of time, in the manner of a mighty rushing wind, symbolized by the tongues of fire, manifested in the apostles. Congregation, we know from the Old Testament that there were three major spiritual holidays for the people of Israel. There was, of course, the celebration of the Passover, when they would commemorate their remarkable deliverance from Egypt, that remarkable act of redemption when God redeemed His people. And we know that that celebration was remarkably fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, who died precisely at that moment, precisely at the moment when the Passover was celebrated, as the ultimate Passover lamb. The second of those feasts, of those annual feasts, was the day of Pentecost. And the third one was the Feast of Tabernacles, the final feast in which they would commemorate how they dwelt in the wilderness in tents and how God had brought them to their home. And so this would have been the second of those feasts, the day of Pentecost. And in the first place, Pentecost, of course, and I know that our children who go to school have learned that already, it's just a Greek word that means 50. And so Pentecost was always celebrated 50 days after the Passover. And in the first place, it was a harvest celebration. On the day of Pentecost, people would, or the congregation of Israel, would offer up to God the first fruits of their harvest. The climate in Israel is such that it's common for him to, to have two harvests a year. And so they would have an early harvest and they would have a late harvest. And as they would begin the harvest at this time of the year, they would offer up to God the first fruits. Why? As an expression of gratitude in the recognition 
that that harvest was purely the result of God's work. Even though they had sown the seed, they realized it was God alone who caused that seed to germinate. And so that ultimately they owed their entire harvest unto God who caused it to prosper. But, and this was especially focused on after the exile, 50 days after the first Passover, something else of great significance took place in the history of Israel. 50 days after the first Passover, after they were delivered from Egypt, God gave His law to the people of Israel. We are reminded of that every Lord's Day. And that moment was really the moment in which God entered into covenant with the nation of Israel as a people. He already had been the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here at Mount Sinai, God established the national administration of that covenant. And that's why the law begins remarkably by a reminder of that. I am the Lord your God that delivered you out of the bondage of Egypt. And so especially after the exile, the nation of Israel on the day of Pentecost would not only focus on the harvest, but they would commemorate that very significant moment in their history. And yet what's remarkable, we know that something went very wrong after the law was given. We know that when Moses did not return, the people made a golden calf. They began to dance around the golden calf, thereby greatly offending God, worshiping him by using symbols that belonged to the Egyptian idols. And we know that God's judgment was very swift. That when Moses came down with the law, and he cast that law down, and the law was broken, symbolizing what people of Israel had done. And then we remarkably read this. Listen carefully to Exodus 32, verse 28. When the children of Levi were commanded to execute judgment upon the people of Israel for having done this. And we read this. And the children of, and the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. About 3,000 men. Does that sound familiar? Because what do we read in Acts 2 verse 41? How many were converted on the day of Pentecost? About 3,000 men. So what was the difference? Ah, you see, on that day, Moses came down with the law. And he broke it. And God's judgment was executed on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends. And we read that many were pricked in their hearts. Their hearts were cut open. Their hearts were circumcised. And so the Holy Spirit planted that law within the hearts of these people. And they lived. About 3,000 lived. That's the wonder. And so for the Jews, the celebration of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, was a day of profound significance indeed. 
And we have to realize, and the majority of commentators would all confirm that this also happened on the first day of the week. Just like Jesus arose on the first day of the week. That again now the exalted Christ by sending forth his spirit on the first day of the week sanctions that first day of the week. And then when the day of Pentecost was fully come, when they were all with one accord in one place, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And so what happened on that day? is that the heavens were opened. Or I should actually put it this way. Those heavens had been opened by the ascending Christ. As prophesied in Psalm 24, He had gone into the very presence of His Father. And the gates of heaven had to yield. He merited that by His finished work. As we pointed out to you, As a result of sin, the gates of heaven were shut. They were barred by the angels. But through the finished work of Christ, the gates of heaven had been opened again. And so out of that open heaven, opened by the Son, the Father, as He honors the work of His Son, and by His Son pours forth His Holy Spirit upon the children of men. Because congregation, this too was an essential component of the work of redemption. Boys and girls, you know when we go back to Genesis, and we always have to go back to Genesis, If we want to understand God's redemptive work, the redemptive work of Christ, the redemptive work of a triune God, we always have to go back to Genesis. Because there we learn how God made us and for what purpose He made us. And so again, God not only created us in His image so that we would reflect the very character of God, and most importantly, that we would reflect the glory of His only begotten Son. But it was also God's desire to dwell within man. Not only to dwell with man, and to make Himself known to man, and to reveal Himself to us in the person of His Son, but to dwell within us. So intimate so intimate a relationship did God desire with the children of men. That's why when God made Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth, His work was not finished until He breathed the breath of life into His nostrils. And at that moment, Adam became a living soul, not only physically and biologically, but he became a living soul because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father and the Son, dwelt within him, fully equipping him to answer to the purpose for which God made him. Fully equipping him so that by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that image could function properly. So that by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Adam was capable of knowing his Maker. Adam was fully inclined to love his Maker. 
And Adam was fully inclined to honor and obey his maker, equipped by the spirit that dwelt within him. And as I said earlier, when we fell, we not only lost God's image, but worst of all, God withdrew himself from us. And as a result, the heart of man became an empty heart. That's why a life without God is an empty life. That's why, my dear friend, if, if God is not your portion today, no matter what you may do, no matter what you may be pursuing, ultimately, you will not succeed in filling your empty heart. Because your empty, your heart was designed by God to be the dwelling place of His own Spirit. And that's why we will never fulfill the purpose for which we were made until that Spirit again dwells within us. And that's precisely why the outpouring of the Spirit was the accomplishment of God's good pleasure. It was the fullness of time. It's remarkable that the chapter begins this way, just like in Luke 2. In Luke 2, we read about the fullness of time. The fullness of time, that means that exact moment eternally decreed by God that His Son was born in Bethlehem's manger. But Now in Acts 2, again we read of the fullness of time. This precise moment decreed eternally by God. That moment when He who had sent forth His Son in the fullness of time now also sent forth His Holy Spirit in the fullness of time. It's remarkable, is it not, that that happened exactly seven weeks after the Lord Jesus cried, It is finished. Because the 50th day was the first day after that seven-week period had been completed. And again, that matches the language here. Because seven, as you know, is the number of perfection, the number of fullness. And so, on this day, in the most literal sense of the word, God makes a new beginning. Ultimately, he made that beginning by sending his son. That's why it's so amazing that the book of Matthew, Matthew 1, begins by saying, when it talks about the generations of the Lord Jesus Christ, it uses the Greek word Genesis. So Matthew 1 begins like Genesis 1, in the beginning. And so by sending his son, God made a new beginning through the second Adam. But we see the same thing here. Again, on the first day of the week, God begins and makes a new beginning. So the question arises always, does that mean then that the Holy Spirit was not there prior to this day? Was the Holy Spirit not there in the Old Testament? And of course He was. And if you have a computer concordance, I've done it myself. If you actually search the Old Testament Scriptures, you will be surprised how many references there are to the Holy Spirit. David was keenly aware of it. In Psalm 51, after Nathan had come to him, 
The thing that he feared the most is that God would withdraw his spirit from him. Oh, withdraw not thy Holy Spirit from me. And so, God's people in the Old Testament, they too were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They too were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the ministration of the Holy Spirit was very limited in that sense. First of all, limited to one nation and given to specific individuals to be able to perform specific tasks. But what happens on the day of Pentecost? Suddenly, the gates are flung open. Suddenly, the Spirit comes down to now begin His worldwide ministry. He has now come down in order that the promise made to Abraham would now be fulfilled. And that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are the beneficiaries, congregation, of what happened on that day. And that's why, as we reflect on God's unspeakable gift, because not only is the Son His unspeakable gift, but the Holy Spirit is also His unspeakable gift, His inexpressible gift. Because congregation... Where would we be without that gift? To use the analogy with which I began, we would dwell in utter darkness. Without that Spirit, there would be no spiritual life. Without that Spirit, there would be nothing but death, spiritual death everywhere. And so by the grace of God, we may belong to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, if we belong to those who as needy, guilty sinners have taken our refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the result of His work, the work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, as believers, we owe everything to Him. We owe everything to Christ who secured our salvation. But were it not for the Holy Spirit, we would have never experienced it. We would have never become the beneficiaries of that salvation. And so all spiritual life is to be attributed to this blessed third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so how beautifully we see on the day of Pentecost... How beautifully we see, again, God's good pleasure on display. The the good pleasure of a triune God. How beautifully we see confirmed. What is God's goal, congregation? What is God's overarching goal in saving us? Is to bring us back to Himself. God's goal is to bring us back into an intimate covenant and love relationship with Himself. God's overarching goal is not only to restore His image in us, but to make us again what we were created to be, namely, temples of the Holy Ghost. Ah, that's the gift, you see, that flows out of the ascension. We quoted that this last Sunday, Psalm 68, verse 18, or when we commemorate the ascension, 
Remember what it says, thou hast ascended on high, and thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also. For the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Not only dwell among them, but that the Lord God might dwell in us. That's why the coming of the Holy Spirit was so essential. Had the Holy Spirit not come, the work of Christ would have been in vain. Had the Spirit not come, and if that Spirit would not work until this day, the gospel would fall on deaf ears. We as the servants of God, we would preach the gospel in vain. But what is it throughout the ages that renders that word fruitful? It's not our eloquence. It's not our gifts. What renders the word fruitful time and again is the mighty and irresistible work of that Holy Spirit. And so, dear believer, had that Spirit not quickened you, you would still be dead in sins and trespasses. Had that Spirit not quickened you, you would have never repented of your sins. Had that Spirit not quickened you, you would have never seen the glory and the beauty of Christ. Had that Spirit not quickened you, you would have never been drawn to Him. You would have never seen the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, had that Spirit not quickened you, you would still be dead in sins and trespasses until this day. Oh, how indebted we are to that blessed Holy Spirit. I think we could rightfully say, therefore, that on the day of Pentecost, as the Spirit was shed forth, as He was poured out, it was God who was literally pouring out His heart of love. That's it. God pouring out His heart of love. And He can do so freely without restraint because of the finished work of the Holy Spirit, of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that is God's desire. God's desire is to make us the recipients of that love. God's desire is to again embrace us in His love. And He can do so freely on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, reverently speaking, God was waiting for his son to say it is finished. But he was equally waiting for that moment where he could freely pour out his love upon the sons and daughters of men, freely pour out his spirit upon us. This is who God is. Because congregation, sin changed us. But sin did not change God. That's why God immediately revealed that a Savior would come in Genesis 3. God is the I am that I am. I, the Lord, change not. And therefore God had purposed eternally that He would send His Son in the fullness of time to merit the ministry of His Spirit so that God can do again what He had originally set out to do. And that is not only bring us back into union with himself, but ultimately to make us again temples of his Holy Spirit. 
Thanks be unto God for the unspeakable gift of His Holy Spirit. And then we see the, the, the manner in which He comes. And I want you to notice, also boys and girls, now remember, as human beings, our whole life revolves around what we see and what we hear. Everything we experience is through our eyes and through our ears. That's essential. That's exactly what happens on the day of Pentecost. There was something they heard, and there was something they saw. First of all, they heard a sound coming from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Suddenly, now I know they were waiting for it, they were expecting it. Now remarkably, Jesus did not tell them what would happen on that day. He just told them, go to Jerusalem and wait there for the promise of the Father. Wait for the outpouring. So they were, they, they were all together in one place with one accord, praying, praying that this promise would be fulfilled. An important lesson, an important practical lesson for us. Congregation, I don't think there's anybody here that would argue that we also need the Holy Spirit today. We need Him so very much. We need Him in our own personal lives. We need Him as a congregation. We certainly need it as a, as a nation. But are we? Do we gather with one accord? Do we gather as families? Do we gather as a congregation? Are we supplicating for that Spirit? Are we praying for that Spirit? Now, I realize that the gift of that Spirit was God's sovereign gift. And that's why it came at His sovereignly appointed moment. Suddenly, unexpectedly, the Spirit demonstrates His presence and demonstrates His power. There we see the sovereignty of God, but never disconnected from our responsibility. A congregation, I will repeat this often. What we need to understand, when we take our responsibility seriously, that's when God works sovereignly. Let me repeat that. When we take our responsibility seriously, that's when God works sovereignly. And they were taking their responsibility seriously. They were together with one accord. And suddenly, suddenly that prayer is answered. The heavens were rent. God came down in the person of His Spirit. And He came with this remarkable symbolism, the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Now, of course, you know that it wasn't a wind. The windows weren't rattling. The trees were not sweeping back and forth, but it sounded like a hurricane. It sounded like a tornado. I'm sure you've read and heard that when a tornado approaches like a thousand freight trains, that's the noise they heard, this dramatic noise. I've lived through a hurricane in New Jersey. I'll never forget, never in my life, did I hear such a sustained roar of the wind whipping around our house? Something I'll never forget. That's the kind of noise they heard here. 
But the beauty is that this wind is not destructive. Tornadoes and hurricanes are destructive in their force. Nothing is safe in its path. Utter destruction follows wherever it comes. But so not the work of the Holy Spirit. So where the analogy uh, connects here is that it symbolizes his astounding power. His extraordinary power. That nothing can resist that spirit. Nothing can withstand it. That spirit, when he comes with his power, overcomes all obstacles, overcomes all opposition. Congregation, if we have any self-knowledge, if we have any self-knowledge because of the work of that Spirit, then we will know what a miracle it is that God dealt with such a person as you and I are. Because the state of the human heart, the natural state of the human heart, is far, far worse than we realize. We often underestimate it. Jeremiah said that the heart of man is desperately wicked. The opposition of the natural heart to God is so profound that only the mighty power of the Spirit, that Spirit who moved upon the earth, that Spirit who executed the work of Christ as the living Word when He created in Genesis 1, That spirit, in its might and power, has to overcome that natural enmity of the human heart, that natural resistance, that heart which is by nature as hard as a rock. But thanks be to God, that spirit is a mighty spirit. That spirit is a powerful spirit. That spirit is an irresistible spirit. That spirit breaks down all oppositions. That spirit breaks open the human heart. That spirit makes us willing in the day of God's power. That spirit brings forth genuine repentance. That spirit got a hold of a Manasseh in his cell. An exceedingly wicked king, as you know from 2 Chronicles 33, a man who went out of his way to be as wicked as he possibly could. And yet that spirit got a hold of him in his prison cell. Manasseh repented. A Saul of Tarsus, who was breathing out slaughter in his enmity against Christ. In one moment, that man is stricken. In one moment, there he lies on the ground. And he says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And our conversion may not have been as dramatic as that congregation. But every believer, every believer is a masterpiece of this Spirit. Every believer is a believer because this Spirit, by His mighty, powerful, irresistible operation, has taken hold of a sinner like you. And of course, the analogy of the wind, Christ already referred to in His discussion with Nicodemus. When he describes it as follows, he said, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So every one that is born of the Spirit. And that's what happened here. 
people had no idea where it was coming from. No idea where it was going. But the evidences of his presence were very, very powerful. But the beautiful, that's what I want you to realize. And I want to repeat that again. This power is manifested for the salvation of sinners. To render the work of Christ fruitful in the hearts of sinners. This spirit with his power does not come to destroy us. No, he comes to make us a new creature in Christ Jesus. And so it sounded like a hurricane. It sounded like a tornado. But the results of it are entirely positive. Oh, a mighty sound came from heaven. And it says here, and it filled the house where they were sitting. That reminds us of the end of Exodus, when the tabernacle was finished, the house of God. Then what happens? God comes and he fills that structure with his presence, with his mighty presence, and he ignites the sacrifice. The same thing happened when the temple was finished. Again, God came and filled it with his presence. That's what he does until this day. When that spirit comes, he doesn't just operate on the, on the peripheral of our lives. In other words, on the edges. Oh no, when he comes, he fills the heart. When he comes, he establishes his permanent residence in the heart of sinners. What an amazing thing. And he can do that on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, when that spirit comes, how does he find our hearts? He finds our hearts as cesspools of iniquity. Cesspools of iniquity. But because of the finished work of Christ, he can now freely come and take hold of such a heart and fill that heart with his presence. That's why only Christians, true Christians, live fulfilled lives. Because true Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit. Their hearts have become the residence of that blessed Holy Spirit. To our shame, we sometimes forget that. And to our shame... We do not always treat that holy resident with the respect that he deserves. That's why Paul had to say, grieve not the Holy Spirit by which you have been sealed. Grieve him not. And so we, not only should we be conscious of pleasing Christ, but remember the Spirit who dwells within us is the Spirit of Christ. And we are to honor him as such. And what a blessing it is that that spirit will make his presence known even when we sin, even when we stumble. It was that spirit that brought David to his knees the moment Nathan said, Thou art the man. 
It is that Spirit dwelling within us who makes us hypersensitive to sin. That's what He does because He is a Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit, His his work is to make us a holy people, conformed to the image of Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel. Oh, it filled the house. And so that Spirit fills the heart of the sinner. And so we see a beautiful sequel. I'm sure you've heard this before. A beautiful sequel, again, as we look at the the major event in redemption history. The birth of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ. And the outpouring of the Spirit of Christ. So we, we would say, we could say that at the birth of Christ, we see God with us again. God with us in the person of His Son. The death and resurrection of Christ, we see that God is also for us through the finished work of His Son. But on Pentecost, we see God's overarching desire, not only to be with us and to be for us, but to be in us and to dwell within us by His blessed Holy Spirit. So we could say, reverently speaking, God is at home in the hearts of His people. At home in the hearts of His people. And He will will abide there forever. But it says in Psalm 132, verse 13 and 14, apply this to the Holy Spirit as well. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. That's why, if you're a believer, you are a walking miracle. That's who you are, a walking miracle. If you are a believer, and if your heart is drawn to Christ, if you desire to live for Him, It's all because of that Spirit who dwells within you. But not only did they hear something, but they also saw something. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it said upon each of them. Ah, you see, for an Israelite, both the wind and the fire, they were symbols of God's presence. They knew God was a God who said of himself that he answers by fire. He answered by fire when the tabernacle was inaugurated. He answered by fire when the temple was inaugurated. But he also responded in fire to the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. He answered with fire when Nadab and Abihu came with strange fire into the tabernacle. He answered with fire on Mount Carmel. And that momentous moment when God demonstrated who He was in front of His people who had so ungratefully rejected Him, He answered by fire. The Bible also tells us that our God is a consuming fire with whom no one can dwell And we know that fire can both be harmful and can be beneficial. 
Fire can be very destructive. So when we live and die in sin, we will experience that our God is a consuming fire. The fire that burned in the altar of burnt offering was a continual reminder to the Israelites that their sin provoked God to wrath. But the beautiful thing was that every morning and evening there was a sacrifice. And when the priest was all done, he came back with God's blessing upon a sinful people. That's the beauty of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because you see, on Golgotha, Christ quenched the wrath of God. His sacrifice was the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means his sacrifice was a wrath-ending sacrifice. A sacrifice whereby he quenched the wrath of God to which we have provoked him with our sins. And now you see, on the basis of that finished work, now that spirit is sent forth not to destroy men, but to save them, to redeem them. And so here that fire, again, it only looked like fire. And remarkably, it it sat upon the head of each of them. The, The Spirit of God was equally distributed to all of these people that were there, 120. And on each head you could see a tongue of fire, a a little tongue. But you see, it only looked like fire. Because you see, this is symbolic. Not only the wind shows us the power of the Spirit, but this shows us the energizing nature of the work of the Holy Spirit. So I have no time to unpack this, but let me quickly mention a couple things. So what does fire do? It enlightens It purifies, it melts, and it warms. That's what the Spirit does. When he he gets a hold of a sinner by his mighty power, first of all, he enlightens our understanding. The scales fall from our eyes. Suddenly we see ourselves the way God sees us. He enlightens us about our own wretched state in order to enlighten us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he purifies. His indwelling has a purifying effect. It produces repentance. It produces a turning away from sin. Oh, that fire melts. That fire melts the hardest heart. That fire makes the sinner willing in the day of his power. Oh, he ignites the heart of the sinner with the fire of his mighty work. And he he sets the heart of sinners aflame, aflame with the love of God, shed abroad in our hearts. But also the symbolism, of course, of the tongue. That's That's significant. And the word tongue appears there twice. Tongue, a tongue, the symbol of a tongue on top of the head. And they spoke with other tongues, other languages. The congregation, again, that's the symbol of the mighty work of the Spirit because our tongues, our tongues by nature are set on fire of hell. James 3, and the tongue is a fire and is set on fire 
of hell. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Our tongues were given by God as instruments of worship. Our tongues were created by God to declare His glory. But as fallen sinners, as our tongues become destructive, our tongues become instruments of evil. Think, just read James 3, everything he says about the tongue. And what happens? When the Spirit of God gets a hold of us, when that Spirit of God makes us a new creature, it begins to affect our tongue. And our tongue again becomes an instrument of glory and worship. In Psalm 119, verse 172, the psalmist writes, My tongue shall speak of thy word. Later in the chapter we read, Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. They will become proclaimers of truth. They will use their tongues to proclaim the glory of God. Psalm 35, verse 28, And my tongue shall speak of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. Psalm 66, verse 17, I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. Congregation, I ask you, has your tongue become an instrument of worship? How are we using our tongue? God created us with the ability of speech to proclaim His glory. That's what Adam and Eve would have done before they fell. They would have used their tongue to magnify Him. They would have used their tongue to respond to God's revelation of Himself. When the Spirit of God renews us, our tongue begins to function again as it was designed to function. There's another thing we need to focus on. That's the final point. I need to move on a bit quickly. And this evening, I really hope to go into great detail how that spirit operates savingly from John 16. Another thing we need to realize here is that Pentecost is a reversal of the Tower of Babel of Genesis 11. Boys and girls, you know what happened at the Tower of Babel. The people were disobedient to God. He had told them to spread and to fill the earth, and they refused. They built a tower as a symbol of their rebellion against God. And God came down, and he confused the languages. So before the flood, there was only one language. One language. And now all of a sudden, a multitude of languages. And that forced people to spread apart. Now we have a world that is filled with all kinds of languages as an ongoing reminder of God's judgment upon a sinful human race after the flood manifested at the Tower of Babel. And so people don't understand each other anymore. But now here, here we see that Christ came to be the curse reverser. The curse reverser. And we see the fruit of it on Pentecost. The Spirit of God poured out and in such a way that the apostles, who were not learned men, suddenly began to speak other tongues. And we read in the verses that follow, people marveled. They say, are these not all which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. 
So there's always been a debate as to what happened here, whether that's a speaking miracle or a hearing miracle. It could be both. But when it says here, the Spirit gave them utterance, the, the, the Greek word means that they spoke clearly. They spoke articulately. There was no mistake in what they were saying. Everyone could hear them. So contrary to what you often find in charismatic circles, they did not talk gibberish. The Spirit gave them utterance. They spoke with clarity. And everyone understood them. What an amazing, amazing reality. Fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour of my Spirit upon all flesh. Zephaniah 3, verse 9, For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. And then verse 6, Every man heard them speak in his own language. So the fact that we may hear the Word of God in our language is one of the blessed after effects of Pentecost. And it's the spirit of Pentecost who is still driving his church today to see to it that the Bible will be translated in every known language of the world. That's God's will. That's God's desire that ultimately every man will hear the word of God in the language in which he was born. And that was clearly communicated on this day. And what did they talk about? Well, it says in verse 11, we do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of Christ. And I can assure you that as they spoke, they could not speak of anyone else but Christ. As one commentator said it, Pentecost is ultimately a Christ feast. Because when we go on in chapter 2, and I hope you will do it at home today, when Peter preaches his sermon, filled with the Holy Spirit, he speaks about Christ. His entire sermon is about Christ. Because that's who the Holy Spirit is. We will see that tonight. His work is to glorify Christ. So how do we know today that someone is a Spirit-filled person? Spirit-filled persons cannot but speak of Christ. They cannot but glorify Him. And I'm sure that's what they were doing when they were declaring the wonderful works of God. A congregation, thanks be to God that that Spirit is the same. That Spirit is still working today. And we need that spirit today. We need to pray for that spirit to manifest his amazing power, his life-giving power, his renewing power, his sanctifying power, his glorifying power again in our generation, in my heart, in your heart, in the hearts of our children. And our encouragement today is that that Spirit still works, not because we deserve it, but that Spirit still works because of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, who's at the Father's right hand, where He still continues 
to shed forth that spirit even in our generation. For the promise, the promise is to us and to our children. And so let us pray fervently. Let us take hold of Christ's own words who said, when you pray for the Spirit, when you ask my Father for His Spirit, He will grant it as surely as you would hear the petition of your children. And so let's pray for ourselves, for our families, for our nations. Also regarding this Holy Spirit, O oh God, rend the heavens and come down. We, may we do so fervently, and may we do so with one accord. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, oh, we give thee thanks for the unspeakable gift of thy blessed Holy Spirit, to whom we owe everything, to whom we owe the gift of thy word, the gift of the ministry, but also the amazing work that he does in the hearts of sinners. Lord, we pray that as thy people we would be deeply humble today, to think that he also conquered us, we who by nature were also dead in sins and trespasses, so that our hearts may be humbled and broken, but also encouraged to know that that spirit, when he makes his residence in our souls, will never forsake the work of his own hands. Go with us now as we go homeward and grant us again a desire to return in this evening hour to place ourselves once more under the ministry of thy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.